Today we turn in God's word to Genesis 38 and then to Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3. We begin today a brief five-week series tracing the promises of the covenant of grace through all of Scripture and looking at five women in Jesus' genealogy, five mothers of Christ, and how this points to God's plan to save the nations for himself and Jesus. We begin in Genesis 38. Hear now the word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house. Till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, And she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. 
Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Matthew begins the gospel with a genealogy. We've been in the gospel of Matthew for about a year now. What we see in this genealogy is literally a book of Genesis. That's what the word genealogy refers to, a book of origin. Matthew is tracing the promises of God from Abraham to Christ. And in this genealogy, we read the names of five women, Tamar, Rahab, the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, Ruth, and Mary. They are mothers of Jesus. Today we begin this series looking at them. Why are they mentioned? What do they have in common? Why does Matthew begin his book with this genealogy and with these women mentioned? Tamar is the first of them. So as Matthew reminds us of Genesis... We go back there today in Genesis 38, one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, a chapter, depending on the age of your kids, that you want to talk to them about in age-appropriate ways. And yet in this chapter, out of darkness comes light, because what we see is Christ in the Old Testament. What we see is that these women are pointing to the work of Christ and the explosion of the plan of God, and the gospel going forth to the nations. Let's look first at the darkness of sin, beginning in the first 11 verses. The Bible gives us stories. You don't have to 
go very far to know that today, do you? It doesn't just give you dry, dusty things. It's brutally honest with sin and the impact of sin in our hearts and the world. In Genesis 38, we're right in the middle of the larger narrative of Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. And the family of Joseph, or rather the family of Jacob, is a mess. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you're heading to go on a Thanksgiving trip. Maybe there's tensions among your family. Maybe there's sins that have been committed. Maybe there's horrible things that have happened. And you wonder, does the Bible talk about bad stuff? It does. Does the Bible pretend the darkness is not there? It doesn't. That's important to know. Jacob and his sons here have been blending in with the nations rather than being a blessing to the nations. They're ripped apart. Favoritism, lies, arrogance, hatred. And chapter 38 is like a lens that zeroes in on one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Judah. He's the fourth child of Leah. Remember her kids? Grandfather Laban had resorted to trickery. He unloaded Leah onto Jacob, and Jacob showed her very little love or affection. Judah is greedy. One chapter earlier, it was he who had the idea not to kill Joseph, but to sell Joseph in slavery to get money, kind of like the Judas of the Old Testament. He's living in unbelief. Judah is rebelling against God and his people. We see that right away in verse 1. At that time, at the time of Joseph being sold into slavery, Judah is looking for a wife. And he goes away from his family, away from his brothers, away from the covenant community, away from worshiping God. Here in this town, he meets a man named Hira, who is a Canaanite or an Adulamite. Do you remember Adulam? That's the cave that David would later hide in, later in the Bible. This reminds us, loved ones, of a couple of things. The importance of the gathered people of God, not to go out on our own, not to forsake assembling as God's people in worship. On our own, we are so weak and frail. We need one another, and we need godly friendships. Yes, it's okay to have non-Christian friends. We don't live in a Christian commune. But in our friendships, whoever that person is, in the church, out of the church, we need to ask, is this relationship helping me to love and serve God with this person? Judah is in a a town of Canaan, and an unnamed woman, known as the daughter of Shua, is who he meets. And he's showing us, just like Esau, and just like Samson, the folly of going after and pursuing a relationship with someone who's not a believer. It's lust at first sight for Judah. The language is very abrupt. He saw her, he took her, he went into her. Much like Eve saw and took the forbidden fruit. God is gracious, and maybe you or your spouse wasn't a Christian when you met, and you now are, praise God. 
But young people, God tells you as you pursue relationships and one day marriage to look for a godly Christian woman, young boys, young girls, to look for a godly Christian man and to pray that you would be that godly Christian woman or man for that person one day, to only marry in the Lord. The spiral continues. Judah is rejecting the Lord. The Canaanite woman is fertile. Three sons are born. And even in this, it suggests that Judah was absent. He wasn't there when one of them was born. He was out at Chazib, the city of lies. That's what that word means. And then he gives one of his sons, Ur, to another woman outside the covenant of God, a Canaanite named Tamar. God will not be mocked. Verse 7 says, Ur was evil. His wickedness was of such degree that the Lord put him to death. Reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know the details. After his death, Ur precipitates a crisis in the line of Judah. Ur's dead. What's going to happen? So it goes to the next son, Onan. And this is a practice in the Old Testament called leveret marriage, where the next son, after his brother dies, is called on to perform the duties to raise up a child for his dead brother. So the child and the inheritance will not go to the next son, but to the baby that's born. This is not binding on God's people today, so don't go home and say, well, I'm living in disobedience if this has happened in your family. It is there in the book of Ruth. It's a very unique Old Testament custom. Onan doesn't like the idea. He doesn't want his dead brother to get the inheritance, or his dead brother's son to get the inheritance. He wants it for himself, and yet he also wants Tamar for himself. So he uses her sexually without doing his duty. That's what verse 9 is telling you. And it says over and over again he did this. Onan is wicked, and God kills him. What does every sin deserve for all of us? The wrath and curse of God. God is just. He is holy. He doesn't take sin lightly. Two of Judah's sons are dead. Judah now is superstitious. He thinks Tamar is the problem. I'm not going to give son number three to her. Two of them already have died. So Judah stalls. Rather than, again, the next son in line was to be Tamar's husband. That's the Old Testament law here. But Judah says to Tamar, don't call us, we'll call you. And the line of Judah faces extinction. Do you see what everyone's doing here, loved ones? Everyone's working the angle on their own agenda. Which in our hearts we can so easily do as well. The darkness of sin. Judah sells his brother to slavery, ditches his family, has a shotgun wedding with an unbeliever, runs with unbelievers, ignores his children. It's frightening. He's self-deceived. He's blind. And we so easily act the same way apart from the grace and the Spirit of God. Secondly, the hypocrisy of sin. The first 11 verses cover about 20 years here in Genesis 38. That's quick. (laughs) 
the last 19 verses about less than a year. So if you're looking at the camera, it's the big angle, it's the big picture, and now it's zeroing in. Sheila has grown up, but Judah has not given Tamar to him. Tamar, at this point, in this culture, in this situation, would be left to poverty, she'd be ignored, rejected, languishing. She doesn't want to stay in that situation. She sees a window of opportunity. Now Judah's wife has died. So the line of Judah, the continuation of his children, is basically dead at this point. Tamar's trickery and deceit works very quickly. Judah's sexual immorality must have been a matter of common knowledge. The way the text reads is that Judah was this kind of man. He would go to prostitutes, not perhaps a one-time thing. She discerned, verse 12, that when he was comforted, meaning the week of mourning for his dead wife was over, he would be looking for female companionship. He's traveling the highway. It's sheep shearing time. Tamar was a Canaanite. Cult prostitutes would sell their services as an idea of fertility magic to ensure the growth of the crops that was going on in this time and throughout Israel's Old Testament history. What would that be equivalent to today? Spring break, Mardi Gras, just kind of going somewhere and doing something and acting like no one knows. She dresses to pretend she's a prostitute. She takes off her widow's clothing, has bright, shiny clothes on. She sits by the road, and the encounter, verse 14, takes place at Naim, which literally means the opening of the eyes, ironically. Judah doesn't see her for who she is. His eyes are blind. His eyes are blind to his own sin. His sexual appetite will not tolerate postponement. He is content to let Tamar languish as a childless widow indefinitely, but he's about to take what he wants. What will he pay? The text says he'll pay with a goat, a high price, but he doesn't have a goat. So he negotiates, and she does, to have a signet, a cord, and a staff left. Items of personal identity, of corporate identity. In today's day, it's your wallet, your credit card, your social security number. You're leaving it all. She wants something to identify him. And the pattern of deceit in Jacob's family continues. Jacob deceived Isaac by wearing a goat skin. Judah deceived Jacob by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood. Now Tamar deceives Judah. The sin builds. And there's also a foil. Who is the opposite of Judah? Who is also faced with temptation right in and around these chapters? Joseph. Joseph, by the grace and spirit of God, will not give in to Potiphar's wife, but Judah plunges right in. After the sin, he wants his stuff back. 
He's perhaps embarrassed. He sends his friend with a payment. They can't find her. Where's the cult prostitute? They say, there isn't one. And then Judah himself is worried, verse 23, about something. You see what he's worried about? Himself. He doesn't want people laughing at him. So he and his friend agree, let's just forget the whole thing and move on. Three months pass. The conflict reaches a climax. It's the end of her first trimester. Judah is told Tamar has prostituted herself and is pregnant by prostitution. The punishment usually in that day for this is stoning. Judah doesn't wait to hear the story, and he says something harsher than stoning, burn her. Much like David later on when confronted with his sin. He wants to get rid of her. The shame needs to go away. She's responsible for the death of my sons. And what we see in him is the kind of self-righteous indignation in our own hearts when we are angry at the sins of someone else that we're committing. Or we're committing worse. Judah is self-righteous, ready to burn Tamar, and yet God is merciful. God showed him mercy through a message from Tamar. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. Please identify them. Those words parallel what Judah and his brothers said to Jacob when they brought him Joseph's bloody coat. Please identify these. It's the mercy of God when God brings us to repent of our sin. Much better to confess it before you are caught. But this is the love of God right here in Judah's life. And how does he respond? By the grace of God, his eyes are opened. They were closed at the opening of the eyes. Now the Spirit of God opens them. Tamar is the prostitute. Judah is the father. She is more righteous than I. Not that she is sinless. Tamar was wronged and sinned against, mistreated by Ur and Onan and Judah. But her plan was deceitful and disturbing and not right. But Judah recognizes, I have sinned here. The darkness is great, but the Spirit of God is at work, third. Because out of darkness comes light. Nine months have passed. The time comes for Tamar to give birth to Judah's child. They find out there are twins. There were no ultrasounds then. They were surprised. People today can still be surprised, can't they? The twins struggle in her. Just like the Jacob narrative. It started with twins wrestling in their mother's womb, Jacob and Esau. Now at the end of the Jacob narrative, the same thing is happening. And we see that Zerah seems to be coming out first So they tie a red thread around him. The firstborn would get the double portion, the birthright, all those things. But then, surprise, surprise, he is not born first, but Perez, the younger, comes out. So God will choose the younger 
Perez again rather than the older. And that's the end of the story. Or is it? She has twins. This, this chapter is dark. What's the big point? Well, the point is God's purposes here. Tamar's name comes up two other places in the Bible. Ruth 4. Ruth and Boaz are married. The elders say to Boaz, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. And the book of Ruth closes with ten generations in a, what? Genealogy. From Perez to King David. And we turn to the New Testament in Matthew 1, and Matthew begins with what? A genealogy. And who is the first woman mentioned in the New Testament? Not Eve, not Sarah, not Rebecca, not Esther. Tamar. Tamar is the first woman mentioned in the genealogy. Women were not mentioned in genealogies much. It was tracing the men and the kings. They would come up in places like 1 Chronicles 1, Keturah, Abraham's concubine is mentioned. But why Tamar? Why these women? All of these men in the genealogy of Matthew 1 had mothers. What's going on with these? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. As Sinclair Ferguson says, for one reason, they were probably all non-Israelites. They're outsiders. And it's reminding us of the big picture of the story of the Bible. God is extending his grace beyond the chosen people of Israel and bringing Gentiles and the nations into the covenant of grace. That's why. So many stories in the Bible are about children being born, waiting, childlessness, pain. It's going back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. That a son of Eve will be born to crush the head of the serpent. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is about waiting for the promised child to come. The issue is the line of promise. God's covenant of grace. The Bible's big picture deals with two huge issues. Sin and redemption. It relates these to two different covenants. The covenant of works that God made with Adam. When Adam breaks that covenant, the problem for which the rest of the Bible gives the answer to is seen in the answer of the covenant of grace. That God said, I will send a sinless sacrifice who will die in the place of sinners who will provide righteousness for them, who will pay their penalty in blood. The covenant of grace is the unity of the gospel and the unfolding generations that follow. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Christ performed the works we owe to God under the covenant of works, which we receive by faith alone as members of the covenant of grace. His blood is shed. His atoning death is sufficient 
That's the covenant that Tamar is grafted into by God's grace. What did God say to Abraham? I will bless you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. The inclusion of Tamar and other Gentiles into God's people is evidence that this promise made to Abraham is going forward. The nations are blessed, and it's pointing to the ultimate promise, these many blessings are, of how the world is blessed through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. We've been in Matthew's gospel. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount a long time. It's easy to lose perspective as to what Matthew's gospel is about. It begins here. Gentiles being brought in. It ends where? Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Tamar, the Canaanite, was outside of the people of God, now becomes one of God's people. Through her, God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. The line will go through Perez and Boaz and Jesse and David and Christ. Why else is this important? Sinclair Ferguson says, because God overcomes the effect of sin and shame. This stuff happens. Maybe it has happened in your family. Maybe not exactly this, but maybe stuff surrounding this. The Bible doesn't ignore it. The Bible says Jesus is the answer to it. That one day Jesus will return to make all things new. That Jesus came into a sinful world, not a polished, perfect world. That this is Jesus' family. Tamar is Jesus' mother. Judah is in his line. Would we erase Judah and Tamar from our genealogy if we were talking to people about our family? Why would Jesus include Judah and Tamar in his family? Why would he include any of us, loved ones? We're all dirty and sinful. And by grace, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and my sister. Whatever causes you shame, whatever sins you've committed this week, this month, whatever sins have been committed against you, the Lord understands. The private burdens you carry, he's experienced grief. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. With confidence in Christ, we draw near to the throne of grace. There's hope for you. There's hope for your family. Every family is messed up. Every family is filled with sinners. Every family needs God's grace around you here and in your extended family. Do you think, well, I'm way better than Judah? If so, God is humbling us. Do you think, I'm exactly like Judah, there's no hope for me? If so, God is reminding you of mercy. Maybe you connect with him today. Sin, lust, and the destructive nature of it. Maybe you're here, like Judah was, and you grew up in a covenant family, and you just kind of want to distance yourself from Christ and his church. The good news is God can change you. 
Jesus came to deal with the lustful sins of our hearts. And we are reminded that Judah here repents. That's a huge part of this. He puts his trust in God. He is brought back by God's grace. He doesn't go into her again, verse 26. He didn't know her again. He didn't continue in the sin apart from repentance. He turned away from it by God's spirit. He changed. He wasn't perfect. Later in the gospel, in the the book of Genesis, we see the evidence of that. About this same time, remember, Joseph was sold into slavery. But by the end of Genesis 38, it's about the time when Joseph is about to be reunited with his family. And there they are, Genesis 43. Joseph is second in command in Egypt. The brothers don't know it's him. Joseph said, if you want more grain, you need to leave who? Benjamin. Your father's beloved. Got to leave him here. Judah says, no way. That'll crush my dad. Let me take his place. Me as a substitute in the place of Benjamin. Spare him, take me. It's the principle of substitution. It's the gospel pictured. Christ is our substitute. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is our surety. He is our redemption. He has paid the divine justice by his sufferings and death in our place, in the place of Judah's and Tamar's. The Father sent the Son to the messy world we're in to fulfill his justice, to satisfy and take away your guilt. Like Judah, we're guilty. Like Ur and Onan, we deserve death for our sin, but God has spared us from his wrath and clothed us in Christ's righteousness, so great is the Father's love for you. By the end of this chapter, God is saying, Judah will be the one through whom the covenant of grace continues. Jacob will bless his sons in Genesis 49. He'll say to Judah, the scepter shall not Depart from Judah. David comes from that line. In the Old Testament, the largest of the tribes will be Judah. Judah will be the namesake for the Jews. His name will be written on the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21. The covenant of grace. Jesus had Judah and Tamar as his great, 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 great grandparents. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. Maybe you today don't identify with Judah, but more Tamar. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you've been mistreated and sinned against. Maybe you think you're so shameful and dirty that you're hopeless. God says, By my spirit, I've come to save sinners. He worked in Tamar's heart. He redeemed Tamar. Judah was a sinner. Tamar was a sinner. They both need God's grace. Jesus saves the greatest of sinners. And as a church, this applies to us. This church is a place where those who desire healing from the messiness of sin are welcomed. It's a place where we can talk openly with each other 
about tough stuff. Where side by side we can live together and love each other together and forgive and forbear and walk by faith. We're not perfect. The church doesn't have it all together. No one here does. Sinners can find healing in the gospel, in Christ, as we show each other grace. And as we believe in grace for ourselves. Don't think I'm beyond God's grace. Don't beat yourself up, loved ones. God loves you. He cares for you. The church is here to surround you with arms of love and compassion. And there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you and me. God keeps his promises in ways that are beyond what we can understand. Could Tamar and Judah see what God was doing in this dark chapter at the time? No. And yet God uses Tamar's deception of disobedient Judah to continue Judah's family line so that Jesus would be born. And in every age, God is at work. You don't see the end from the beginning. You might be in a period of darkness and despair right now. But God keeps his promises. He rescues us from past sin and shame. He has promised us in Christ that after darkness comes light. Weep no more, the book of Revelation says. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Amen. Let's respond and sing of the greatness of the gospel. Let's stand. This hymn...